You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. Uh, This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Anna Lemke, who is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome, Anna. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I should also mention that she is the author of these two books, most recently, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, and this one, Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. So I think in both of these books, you make the point that we are becoming a nation of addicts, right? And in particular, we're becoming a nation of addicts to pharmacological products, things which are effectively legalized drugs. And I think when I was younger, I knew plenty of people that became addicts and oftentimes resulted in serious negative consequences, including death. But most of them got started with their addictions using street drugs, things that were illegal and um, were difficult to obtain. And most of the people who are becoming addicts today are, are becoming addicts through legal channels, right? Through medical prescriptions. But the differences between these drugs chemically is really quite minimal. And a lot of the folks who become addicts through prescription ultimately wind up turning to to street drugs. And we've gotten to the point now where I think here in San Francisco last year, more people died of uh, overdoses than died of COVID. And yet the magnitude of the concern or the magnitude of the response is not at all proportionate, it seems, to the nature of the problem. And I think you you cite a statistic, and this is from 2016, that 48% of American public is on some kind of prescription drug, although I don't think that was necessarily a psychotropic drug. Yeah, I'm not remembering that exact statistic. If we look just at psychotropics, one in four American adults is on a psychotropic medication, and one in four American children takes a psychotropic medication. But just to back up a little bit, So Dopamine Nation is about the ways in which almost everything has become drugified. It's not just that medications are incredibly potent. It's that everything's become more potent, more novel, more accessible, large to even infinite quantities. So it's not just that we're all vulnerable to addiction because of pharmaceuticals. We're we're vulnerable to addiction because investing money has become gamified and you know, made addictive. Playing games has become made addictive. Reading, I talk about, you know, my romance novel, Reading Addiction, but really um, the combination of the formula of storytelling plus the technology of e-readers has made reading potentially a drug. So the point really is that we're surrounded by feel-good drugs and behaviors everywhere we go, the, the doctor's office, the grocery store, any old waiting room now that has Wi-Fi, it's like we can't get away from it. So that's essentially kind of the message. You mentioned that we're swimming in access to dopamine. And I was actually hoping that you would spend more time talking about the phone, because it does seem like the phone is the ultimate source of dopamine in, in today's world, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I what I talk about in the book is sort of many different types of drugs. And I glancingly talk about the smartphone and compare it to the hypodermic syringe, sort of a modern day needle delivering digital dopamine. But you're absolutely right. We're all glued to these phones. They're, the medium itself is reinforcing their access to 
traditional drugs to new drugs that didn't exist before. So that's right. Our digital addictions, I think, is something that almost everybody can relate to, which in a way is good because it makes the problem of addiction seem less like somebody else's problem and more like something you know that we're all vulnerable to, which I believe we are. Well, maybe we should backtrack and, and understand a bit about the pain and, and pleasure mechanism. There's an entire philosophy that's built on the notion that we as humans should seek pleasure and flee pain. And it sounds awfully intuitive. I mean, it's how can you argue with that? If you're a utilitarian, your goal is to you know maximize the, some would say greatest good for the greatest number, but oftentimes that becomes conflated with maximizing pleasure. So what's wrong with maximizing pleasure? What's wrong with all of these tools, mechanisms, products, and so forth, which serve to increase the availability and access uh, pleasure and seek to suppress pain and, and discomfort and all that negative stuff. Isn't it built into our constitution almost that we're supposed to pursue happiness, i.e. pleasure? It really is you know, built into our DNA to seek out pleasure and avoid pain. And we have a very specific type of mental wiring that gets us to do just that. The problem is that the biological mechanisms that reinforce that behavior are not well suited to the modern ecosystem. So in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, the way that we constantly seek out pleasure and avoid pain makes a whole lot of sense. But in a world you know, where highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors are incredibly abundant and easy to access, it becomes really problematic because our primitive brains were not evolved for that kind of ecosystem. And what I think has happened is that it's essentially the constant bombardment of our dopamine reward pathways, which is now down-regulated or shifted our hedonic set point, our joy set point, to the side of pain, such that now we're all more vulnerable to pain and need more and more pleasure to feel anything good at all. And that's essentially, again, because we are insulated from pain and have so much access to pleasure in the modern world. Right. So could you maybe elaborate on this? What attracted me to this many decades ago is that this whole idea of homeostasis, right, is something that's very attractive to economists, right? So economists are all about equilibrium and homeostasis is really about equilibrium. And it's about this negative feedback cycle. And under normal circumstances, this regulatory system operates quite well. Could you maybe talk about this pleasure pain kind of balance and, and how the dopamine reward system works according to the rules of homeostasis? Sure. So I will first say that there have been amazing advances in the neuroscience of addiction, pleasure, and pain in the last 50 years or so. And one of the most significant findings is that pleasure and pain are co-located. So the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they essentially work like opposite sides of a balance, like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground. So when we do something pleasurable, our balance tips to the side of pleasure. We get a little release of dopamine, the brain's pleasure neurotransmitter, in a very specific part of the brain called the reward pathway, and we feel good. But no sooner has that happened than our brain will adapt to that release of dopamine by down-regulating dopamine transmission, down-regulating dopamine receptors, pulling those receptors back inside the neuron. But it doesn't just go back down to tonic baseline levels of dopamine, because dopamine is always firing at a tonic baseline level. We actually dip below baseline levels into a deficit state before going back to equilibrium. And I typically imagine that as these 
Gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance, so they stay on until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain, and that's the come down, the after effect, the hangover. Now, if we wait long enough, those gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored, but if we continue to ingest highly rewarding substances or engage in highly rewarding behaviors like pornography, video games, shopping, what have you, then we eventually accumulate all kinds of gremlins from the pain side of our balance as our brains really struggle to adapt to uh, this huge influx of dopamine in the synapse, that space uh, between uh, neurons that are firing. And ultimately, again, what we end up with is a change set point where now we need to use our drug of choice not to feel good, but just to restore homeostasis. We have a very narrowed interest and we're only interested in that drug and other things become less salient. And when we're not using our drug, our balance is tipped to the side of pain and we're experiencing universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use, otherwise known as craving. So paradoxically, the pursuit of pleasure can actually destroy our capacity for pleasure if done incorrectly. Absolutely right. The the pursuit of pleasure for its own sake can lead to anhedonia or the inability to experience pleasure in anything at all. And then, of course, it also makes us more vulnerable to pain than any little injury. Literally is a bigger injury because we're essentially tipped to that side of pain. I guess another way to think about it from another potential metaphor is that You've got like dopamine is like money in the bank. And if you spend all that money and then you want to keep going, you have to borrow money and then you go into debt. And that's that dopamine deficit state. And you can only do that for so long before people won't lend you money anymore. And then you're really in trouble. So it's this idea that it's not just that we're using up the dopamine and then we go back to baseline. It's that there's a price to pay for every pleasure. So it's almost as if we're all acting with very high or infinite discount rates. We're basically saying that the pleasure in the moment that's right in front of us is so much more important than pleasure in the future that we're willing to sacrifice pleasure in the future for pleasure in the moment. When economists are trying to explain drug addiction, they'll say something like, if you tell somebody, hey, if you do this, it's going to have really bad consequences. People say, I don't really care about those consequences. But I I think in the case maybe of certain things like heroin, where it's generally understood, you know, what the consequences are. In these other examples, I don't think that most people are even aware that there are these negative consequences, right? So if someone is trading on, on Robin Hood or if they're playing video games or if they're, you know, just hitting their phone every 10 seconds. I don't think that most people are aware that there is a, a trade-off between kind of pleasure today and capacity for pleasure tomorrow. Is Why is this not more generally understood? And I don't mean by the general public, but by people who should know, people who are yeah. more educated, particularly people in, in, say, healthcare. I think the main reason is that The world is sensory rich and causal poor. And when we're chasing dopamine, it's very hard to see true cause and effect. And it's not a matter of how educated you are or even how much knowledge you have about delayed discounting. When we're in it, we all of us discount the extent to which we're actually not entirely in control of the behavior. And it's only when we get some distance from that compulsive overconsumption or that chasing dopamine 
that we're really able to look back and say, oh my goodness, that, that was strange that I went to such lengths that I invested so much time and so much energy. But yeah, that, that's one of my main messages that the ecosystem that we're in means that we're all engaging in these sort of constant, subtle, largely unconscious or some of them conscious dopamine hits, which cumulatively over time are making our brains look very similar to the brains of people who are very addicted to heroin or very addicted to cocaine. When you talk about immediate rewards versus long-term rewards and this idea of delayed discounting, lots of experiments have shown that most people would rather have a reward today than wait for that same reward a month from now. But there are interesting experiments showing that, for example, if you um, take a group of individuals addicted to drugs right now in their addiction and you say, okay, imagine that you won uh, the lottery. Would you rather have the full amount a week from now or less than the full amount right now? And what you'll find is that um, about 20% of individuals who are in their addiction right now would rather have less than the full amount right now. Whereas people who are in recovery from addiction, it's only about 10% would want less than right now. And 90% are willing to wait a week to get the full amount. And if you look then at people who have never been addicted, what you find is only about 4% of them want less than the full amount right now. The vast majority of them are want to wait a week to get the full amount. So the point here is that the process of addiction, especially in active addiction, changes our ability to wait for rewards. We essentially start operating in our limbic brain, our lizard brain, those phylogenetically conserved lower brain areas that are very primitive, very reflexive, and can become dominant if we get caught up in the loop. So it's fascinating. So I think what economists would say, they, they would take kind of discount rates as exogenous. But what you're saying is that the exposure to these addictive substances and experiences can feed back into the discount rate. And so presumably this would lead you to become addicted to other things. So if you become addicted to one thing, that's going to change the, the math when it comes to you know, encountering other things. So isn't this just the, you know, gateway drug theory, right? That, you know, you start on one drug and then your judgment is clouded when you encounter the, the next more dangerous drug? Well, the gateway theory is, let's talk about that for a second, because um, it's originally started out as this theory that if people use things like alcohol and cigarettes, they're more likely to progress to harder drugs. But what's not clear is the why of that. And the why of that probably just simply has to do with the fact that it's not anything unique biochemically about alcohol and cigarettes that leads people to other drugs. It's just that those are legal and so more accessible. But I think what you're talking about is something we call cross-addiction. This idea that once you have become addicted to one thing, you prime your brain to become addicted to other things. And that's been shown in the animal literature. If you take a rat, you get it addicted to cocaine. And then you take the cocaine away for a very long period of time, let homeostasis be restored, and then expose that rat to cannabis. That rat will become addicted to cannabis much faster than a rat who was never exposed to cocaine. So the idea is that there's some latent permanent brain change making that, that animal more susceptible. We see that all the time in humans. People who become addicted to one thing, give it up, and then switch to something else. Now, that switch isn't inevitable. The treatment of addiction is all about not just switching addictions. Finding passions 
that are healthy and adaptive, but not switching addictions, which is why this idea of overcoming our addictions by replacing one reward with another reward that is equally addictive really doesn't work out because all drugs work on the same final common reward pathway and all addictions, including processor behavioral addictions, uh, ultimately have dopamine as their currency. So I wonder if, if we think about changes historically, if we're looking at the moment today in America and we compare it to maybe other places and times, is it the supply side or the demand side that's really driving it? Is it the availability of all of these kind of dopamine syringes that is leading to this behavior? Or is it the removal of some constraints that we may have had? Maybe it's cultural constraints or, or religious constraints that may have helped protect us from these temptations in the past. I interviewed an economic historian uh, a couple months ago, and he was describing how over time, over like the centuries in England, the availability of security of property led to people being able to start planning for their future more. And so the English relative to other populations had what seemed to be lower, lower discount rates. And so that fed into a culture of deferring gratification and so forth. So did we at one point have institutions or norms or cultural values that would protect us from temptations? And could that be in part what is making us so vulnerable? Or is it simply that there's just so much money to be made and the technology is so easy to utilize to manufacture these things in all the different domains? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we look at the supply and demand story vis-a-vis -vis addiction, it's both supply and demand, right? It's the individual's desire for the drug as well as accessibility of the drug. But the point that I'm making in Dopamine Nation is that the sheer accessibility, quantity, potency, and novelty of drugs today makes access or supply probably the biggest modern risk factor. And as for your question about inherent cultural barriers that are there, I think you're absolutely right. So for most of human history, addiction was thought to be a moral problem or a spiritual problem. And religious organizations essentially took care of people with addiction when they were taken care of. As society became more secular, addiction has become medicalized. We now think of it as a disease. Cultural mores around substance use have also loosened enormously, starting really, you know, in the 1960s, summer of love, tune in, tune on, drop out, or whatever. This idea that taking drugs is a way to express yourself. This idea that if you're not happy, there's something wrong with your brain or there's something wrong with your life. This idea that pain in any form is dangerous and people shouldn't be experiencing pain. These are also cultural narratives that have gained momentum in lockstep with our increased accessibility to pleasurable, rewarding substances, as well as increased accessibility to all kinds of drugs that insulate us from pain. And basically a lifestyle in which, especially in rich nations, we not only very infrequently experience any kind of physical pain, but Many of us experience no physical sensations at all because we're not really moving our bodies. So it's uh, many of these sorts of forces coming together in this sort of dangerous nexus of addiction risk. I found surprising this report that Americans report more pain than almost any other society. So 
pain is one of these things that I guess we don't really have good objective ways of measuring pain. So we rely on self-report. And I suppose whether it's objective or subjective, I don't think there's a way to even distinguish those. But pain is a function of beliefs as much as it is a function of, I guess, bodily integrity or tissue damage or, or whatever. So it's built around expectations. And, and I think another person I interviewed did interesting research on how social rejection, at least when you look at it through an MRI, is identical to physical injury in terms of how it's experienced. So why is, why is America a nation of, of pain? We live among so much abundance and so much opportunity. Why is there so much pain everywhere? I think it's a combination of the narratives that we've cultivated over the past 50 years around pain. Again, this idea that pain in any form is dangerous, sets us up for future pain in the form of a centralizing pain disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as this idea that, you know, if we're healthy and we're happy, we shouldn't experience any pain at all, whether physical or psychological. Also, I think unlimited and unrealistic expectations about what modern medicine and what doctors can actually fix or cure or respond to. So I think those are big factors. We do have an aging population and we do have more people living longer with severe chronic illnesses, but that's also true in other developed rich nations. For example, Japan has an aging population and yet they use a mere fraction of the prescription opioids that we use in this country. Another potential major driver is actually the widespread use of prescription opioids to treat pain. What happens when many people take opioids daily for chronic pain is that their pain actually gets worse over time. Why is that? Because of this whole pleasure-pain balance and the neuroadaptation that occurs, such that although opioids can be very effective short-term for pain when taken long-term, the brain essentially adapts to them over time such that they stop working and can even make pain worse. And you're absolutely right that the experience of pain is a combination of our nociceptic response, that's our peripheral nervous system responding to actual tissue injury, plus our central nervous system top-down response of interpreting that signal. And the way that uh, we interpret those peripheral nervous system signals has a huge impact on whether or not we even experience tissue injury as pain. For example, Henry Knowles Beecher, he studied soldiers in World War II who incurred these massive injuries on the front lines, you know, amputated limbs, gut wounds. And what he found remarkably was that two-thirds of those individuals experienced no pain at all in the immediate aftermath of severe injury. Why? Because, number one, it meant that they were still alive, they hadn't died, and number two, the meaning for them of that injury was that they were going to get to go home. And so their top-down central nervous system filter of that nociceptic injury was, this is a good thing for me. By contrast, there's an interesting case report of a construction worker who jumped on a nail. The nail went right through his, the sole, thick sole of his construction boot and right through his foot. And he was screaming in pain, taking to the emergency room. This was uh, in the last couple decades. This case report was published and he was given massive amounts of opioids. And no matter how much they gave him, Vicodin, Percocet, fentanyl, it wasn't until he'd gotten massive amounts that he finally fell asleep and stopped screaming in pain, giving them the opportunity to remove the large nail, take off his shoe, and discover that the nail had in fact 
gone right between his toes. It had not, in fact, penetrated his tissue at all. And yet for him, looking down at his own foot, that was uh, a painful injury. And so because his brain interpreted that as painful, it probably really was painful. So it's very much like anxiety in that the interpretive framework, the way in which you understand the environment feeds back into your subjective experience of that environment. And if you understand an environment to be unthreatening, then your anxiety is reduced. If you understand a an experience to be meaningful, then the, the pain is reduced. Does that mean that we don't have an adequate supply of narratives that give meaning to pain? And that's why we're unable to experience dis- discomfort. I think people see discomfort as something which is always bad. I mean, I even find that with my students. My students don't understand that or don't believe that discomfort is a necessary part of learning. And, and so they find discomfort to be something to be avoided because of, of the narrative. Um, you talk about the narrative of the illness narratives and how people find identity in in being patients or in being ill. Could you talk a bit about that? Like, I found that part of the discussion very interesting. Yeah. I mean, as I was saying before, you know, our culture has become more and more secular, vulnerable people living in our society who used to be taken care of by our religious institutions are now taken care of by doctors and in medical settings. Medicine has, in effect, become our social safety net, especially as other social safety nets have disappeared. And therefore, for vulnerable people in our society to have access to resources, uh, they essentially have to adopt the sick rule. And this is uh, true for whether or not they're actually physically ill in the way that we traditionally think of illness. And I think that's concerning because in order to access resources through the healthcare system and adopt the sick rule to do that, we also have to then interact with medical doctors and with medical treatment in ways that ultimately might leave us injured which I think is partially what happened with the opioid epidemic. It was the increase in opioid prescribing for minor and chronic pain conditions that ultimately led to several generations of Americans getting addicted to opioids. More opioids just generally out in the supply, being diverted to non-patients who then had more access. And now, of course, we're in the second, third, and fourth waves of that epidemic where those individuals who became addicted through a doctor's prescription or through diverted prescription opioids are now turning to cheaper illicit sources like heroin, illicit fentanyl, and now also a huge spike in methamphetamine addiction and overdose. Yeah, I think this is, uh, you're right, I think it's an impoverishment of narratives around how we think about the project of pain in our lives and how we think about discomfort even. I mean, pain is sort of a catch-all for any kind of psychological or physical challenge or discomfort and how there really seems to be almost a bifurcation in society more recently, where there are some individuals who feel like we should have more discomfort, tolerate more pain, tolerate more, let's say, anxiety as a broad catch-all, and others who feel like that's being cruel and sadistic, and that it's our mission to make everybody feel good right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always amazed at the my experience with healthcare. I've not had a lot of experience with the healthcare sector recently in the last couple of years, I remember I went in to get a, a colonoscopy like two years ago and it took me hours, literally hours to get them to administer it without anesthesia. It was very difficult. <laughs> I couldn't, I could not believe how difficult it was when 99% of people in Europe don't get anesthesia and 90% of Americans do. And 
they thought I was insane, literally, for not wanting anesthesia. And um, I went in for uh, surgery, for tooth surgery at the hospital two years ago. And I think I counted, they offered me opiates 11 times while I was there and then offered them on the way out the door. These were the nicest people. I was amazed at the kindness and it was one of the most pleasurable experiences. I couldn't believe it was like being in a hotel. It was so nice. The fact that they were offering me opiates, I, I think they must have had the best of intentions and they wanted positive reviews and, and that sort of thing. But I always I wondered if they really knew what they were doing because I've had relatives, I've had friends that have had their lives ruined by these short-term prescriptions. Yeah. So this is really fascinating. And if we look at history and to try to puzzle out how did we get here? It really does start with competition between providers. So in the 1800s, doctors generally believed that a certain amount of pain was salutary, that it boosted the immune response, that it boosted the cardiovascular response, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. In fact, so strong was this belief among medical doctors in the 1800s that leading surgeons of the day, when general anesthesia was first invented, declined to use it on their patients. But what happened over time, and one putative explanation for this, what happened over time is that as doctors essentially became competitors of each other, competing for more patients, then pharmacotherapy took precedence over like things like moxibustion or cold water therapy, things that had been prevailing remedies at the time. And certainly, you know, advances in medicine, antibiotics, there's a lot of good things that science brought that doctors didn't have before. But another major trend in medicine was this idea that empathy could cure anything. And that as long as you were, you know, empathic, that somehow it's gotten to the point today where sometimes it's like, it's almost like medical students are taught that just being empathic is sufficient in and of itself, whether or not you really even know what you're doing. Well, I mean, there's empathy that's motivated by superior understanding and then there's empathy that is deferential to the customer i think isn't it more the, the shift away from kind of paternalism to patient sovereignty customer is always right patient yeah patient as customer patient as customer right but i think to understand that shift toward patient as customer you need to appreciate that it arises from medicine as big business and the major competition that different large integrated healthcare systems face as they compete for, you know, a finite pool of paying patients in particular. And so you also talk a bit about the pharmacological industry and its role. Companies are going to maximize profit. That's what they do. That's what they're there for. And I think everything that they do is understandable, but it, I think it takes more than that to create these kinds of problems, right? It requires that the medical establishment allow certain types of information flows. I think doctors probably, their access to information because they're very busy people is limited and reading JAMA is, requires a lot of effort. Going to a conference where there's paid speakers might require a little bit less effort. Is there a problem with the way kind of information is disseminated throughout the medical community? Is that being adequately addressed? Yeah, I mean, the major problem is that the pharmaceutical industry essentially has free reign to shape medical education. And although there are lots of supposed checks and balances in place, when the money's flowing, those don't really guard against the profit motive. When it comes to opioid prescribing, we saw entities like Purdue 
actually adulterate the evidence, infiltrate the peer-reviewed medical journals, infiltrate the Joint Commission, which is supposed to accredit hospitals based on evidence-based science. So all of a sudden, even if you had time as a healthcare provider to go to the journals and read the science or try to find the data, you were mostly reading a kind of pseudoscience that was the result of promotional efforts on the part of Purdue and others. So that's highly problematic. Plus, you have now, you know, most healthcare providers are working in large integrated healthcare centers. They're salaried employees. And we now have protocolized or algorithm medicine, which is fine if it's based on real evidence, but not good at all if it's based on, again, um, the efforts of a lobbying organization, for example. And again, that's exactly what happened with the opioid epidemic. All of a sudden, doctors were taught that as long as they were prescribing their opioids for their patient for pain, then there was a very small chance that person would get addicted, which turned out, again, not to be true. About one in four patients with pain prescribing opioids long-term will develop some kind of opioid use problem. Yeah, it was that sort of clear blue sky between the medical industry and how medicine is practiced. There isn't really much clear blue sky at all, and so that's very problematic especially when we're dealing with addictive drugs, addictive pharmaceuticals like Xanax, like Oxycontin. I teach courses on data science and experimental design and how to understand whether or not a study is well-designed. And when you, you have this discussion of these enriched enrollment experiments, and I was just horrified that anything like this would ever get through peer review. Could you just explain this enriched enrollment process and how on earth something like this could ever make it through peer review? Yeah, I mean, it's not just peer review, but sanctioned by the FDA so that it would, essentially, it's a way of cheating. It's a way of, for drug companies to get their drugs through FDA approval. And the, the examples I look specifically at are with prescription opioids and the treatment of pain. It turns out that many people do not, in fact, tolerate opioids well. That makes them nauseous. They don't work. And what the companies did, companies like Purdue in efforts to get you know, their drugs like OxyContin approved, was they essentially selected for patients who already tolerated or liked the way that opioids made them feel. So they took a group of patients, they gave a bunch of them opioids, and a whole bunch dropped out. And they ignored those people, which means you're already talking with, about a biased sample. And then they took all the people who really liked opioids, said, oh, yeah, these are great. These work for me. And remember, the way that opioids work for pain is partially that they modulate the mu opioid receptor to diminish the experience of pain, but also that they work on the dopamine reward pathway, causing the release of dopamine to cause you know, the patient to feel good emotionally and psychologically as a way to buffer the pain, which also is how they become, they are addictive. And then they essentially took this group of people who liked opioids and then divided them into two groups. And one group they left on opioids, and then the other group they stopped their opioids. So those people then went into opioid withdrawal, and then they went on some other medication or a placebo. So naturally, they're going to have more pain because they're in opioid withdrawal. One of the key factors of opioid withdrawal is body pain, whether or not you have a pain condition. So then they compared those people who were on a placebo in opioid withdrawal to the people who got to stay on opioids who already liked opioids. So it's effectively just a, a way of cheating to make the, their drug look better than placebo. Yeah, that to me is astonishing. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about kind of attention deficit drugs. This is something which we've seen a, a huge rise in diagnoses around attention deficit disorder or attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. And 
I think that some people would argue that we're pathologizing kind of differences in learning styles, right? Maybe we're finding disorders and medical problems where maybe we shouldn't. At the end of the day, in these areas of medicine, it's not like objective, like your arm is broken or not. A lot of it is it's really, it's interpretation. It's how we, we choose to evaluate. These are really normative evaluations, more so than, than say positive evaluations, right? Well, they're also highly subjective, right? It's just sort of based on what the person says, or in the case of a child, what the parents say or what the teachers say. And what the data show, I actually am in that camp. Clearly, there are brain differences. And some people do have executive function problems. That's a real, let's say, learning challenge that some people have that we commonly label attention deficit disorder. My concern here is that as a response to this brain difference, and let's even call it a brain disorder, what we're doing is we're giving children, ever younger children, highly potent stimulants, which are highly addictive. And we're doing it without really the data to support long-term efficacy. If you compare kids with ADHD who get a stimulant versus those who don't and follow their school performance long-term, what you find is there's really no difference in long-term performance, except now you've got the group on stimulants exposed to stimulants, which in my opinion puts them at greater risk for these dopaminergic brain changes that make them vulnerable to addiction, which makes total sense if you're taking methamphetamine every day. Furthermore, if you look at college kids who are on stimulants, it's very clear that college kids who are on stimulants have worse school performance than college kids who are not on stimulants. And stimulants are widely sold and traded among college students. Finally, there was an erroneous narrative, which is still prevalent even among my own students, that if you took a kid with ADHD and you gave them a stimulant to treat their ADHD, you are protecting them against the future development of a substance use disorder because it's well known that kids with these executive function problems have higher rates of developing addiction later in life. So this was this idea that you are in fact protecting these kids from becoming addicted later on. When in fact, you know, Humphreys et al. has a recent meta-analysis showing that is not true. There's nothing protective in terms of the development of addiction about giving your kid with ADHD a stimulant. So you've got a couple things here. You've got a medicine that's clearly highly potent, highly addictive, sold on the street, giving it to kids with a developing brain in the absence of evidence showing long-term benefit compared to kids who don't get it. Now, short-term benefit, great. Everybody loves the kid who gets put on stimulants initially, but how about that kid a decade later? And again, I see those people in my office who have developed a stimulant addiction because of their exposure to pharmacotherapy stimulants. And then finally, you've got this, uh, you've got no evidence at all, despite this uh, narrative that somehow treating the kid with a stimulant is going to protect them against the development of addiction in adult life. Now, for me, all that adds up to would really be avoiding stimulants in my kid, especially when there is evidence showing that behavioral interventions is the best long-term outcome. What do we mean by that? We mean by teaching kids how to focus on one thing at a time, teaching kids how to make a schedule, teaching kids with this executive function problems, how to plan a day, how to use their planner, how to limit dist other distractions to help them focus, things like that. So there are, in other words, there are non-pharmacological interventions that deliver the same results. So to the extent that things like opiates and 
SSRIs and stimulants do provide benefits, if we accept the idea that they do provide benefits, if there are other ways of achieving these benefits, whether they're behavioral changes, whether they're changes in perspective or outlook or different adoption of different narratives, why is it that if those are substitutes for one another that we kind of default to the the pharmacological solution? Is that because of the way in which reimbursement occurs? Is it because of the amount of effort? I mean, taking a pill is a lot easier than having, say, an exercise regime. And we know that exercise is as effective as SSRIs for most people when it comes to short-term, even short-term kind of mood improvement. Is it because it's it's easier or is it because a doctor can't put it on a piece of paper and, and then there's no billing code for that? What's driving that? So three, three factors. Number one, it's easier and faster. Number two, in the short term, whether it's an opioid, a stimulant, or a benzodiazepine, they work wonderfully. On short term, I mean days to, let's say, weeks, but not months to years. And then thirdly, our whole healthcare system is designed and structured to incentivize prescribing pills and doing procedures, because that's very simply what pays. It's what the institution gets reimbursed for. It takes less time. Everything about the healthcare system is, is designed for it. So talk about supply and demand. You've got the demand of patients who want it because initially it works. And then you've got a supply side system that has been fine-tuned over many years to deliver just that type of product. Whereas delivering behavioral interventions doesn't pay, takes long, is slow, is more complicated. But couldn't you, if, if suppose someone does choose exercise instead of pills. Can't you just become addicted to exercise in the same way you're addicted to pills? And then it's certainly going to be a much bigger time suck than pill taking if both are equally addictive. Is the problem with these pharmacological products that they're addictive or is there some other harm? I mean, is addiction bad in and of itself? I mean, addiction is bad in and of itself. Inherent in that term is that it's a maladaptive form of psychopathology the, I, mean, I had a friend who did, she did like an, two hours of yoga every day. And I thought that's like an addiction, right? <laughs> yeah. People can get addicted to exercise, but I mean, what's the d- basic definition of addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. So if your friend's doing yoga two hours a day and she's clearly benefiting from it and not harming anybody else, we probably wouldn't call that an addiction. If she's doing so much yoga that she's now getting spinal injuries or not eating and not sleeping, then we would maybe call it an addiction. And it's true, people can get addicted to different types of exercise, but it's very rare. Why? Because it's effortful, right? And whereas taking a drug works immediately, instantaneously, the dopamine source is pressing that lever and immediately getting a huge bolus of dopamine in the reward pathway. Whereas exercise gives us dopamine through our own re-regulating homeostatic mechanisms. It's the opponent process effect. It's not the immediate effect, so it's much more effortful. And if and yes, occasionally I will see somebody with an exercise addiction, but it's one in a thousand compared to people addicted to food, addicted to video games, addicted to drugs, alcohol. The harm with stimulants, I mean, is on many levels. It's not just the problem of addiction, although that's certainly there, but it's also the problem of identity and self-narrative and coping strategies. What I see a lot of in kids who have used stimulants for a long time for ADHD is that they essentially begin or can or often do use their stimulant to compensate for poor self-care, 
and poor study habits. So they can procrastinate because they know the stimulant will allow us them to stay up the 24 hours or 36 hours before the test to cram it all in. They feel they can't concentrate and they say it's because they have ADHD. That's the self-narrative piece. But they have also not slept more than three hours in the past week. So it's the ways in which the pill is sort of a shortcut for developing the kinds of structured approach to studying and taking care of our bodies that we really need for wellness in, and success in the long run. So it's about trade-offs. And I think we've talked about the intertemporal trade-offs, right? Where you get a short-term benefit with a long-term cost, but there's also inter in the moment trade-offs. So for instance, strength in your focus, it comes at the expense of other types of experiences. And uh, perhaps the, your peripheral vision is eroded if you're in that state of continual focus. I don't think people think about that as a trade-off. So even if you don't have ADHD, if you take a stimulant, you will be able to focus on repetitive rote tasks and do them very well, even better than normal because of the aid of the stimulant. But probably what you lose is the ability to drift and dream to be able to see patterns or connections, what we usually associate with more creative endeavors. So you're absolutely right. It helps a certain type of cognitive function, but probably at the cost of another type of cognitive function. Yeah. I know some folks that are very much in the world of stimulants and other dopamine generating devices, and their observational skills are quite limited. They don't seem to observe the, many of the things that are happening in, in their environment. And I, I think this is a big loss for them. That's right. It's that narrowed focus. That's right. And it's, again, it's sort of pressing on this one lever, this one circuit that your brain can do, but where other than other circuits will naturally atrophy. Well, look, the best way to deal with addiction is to try to stay away from it and have it never happen. We'll talk a bit about remediating it. But if we're just trying to avoid addiction, what are some tools that we can use? You talk a lot about self-binding. And I think that's useful for curing addiction, but it's also useful for avoiding addiction. So should we be hypervigilant to potential sources of addiction? Should we be suspicious when we download that trading app and it's sending us all these little bells and whistles telling us to buy and sell options? I mean, should we just delete that right away rather than trust in ourselves to ignore those messages? How, how can we Put our phone in a lockbox, turn off all of our alerts. Like, what are some tools and techniques that we can use to minimize the likelihood that we get sucked into addictive behaviors? Well, I think, you know, you're right. I think we have to go out into the world today with an appreciation that almost everything has been engineered to be addictive and to have us consume more of it than is actually healthy for us. Desire is healthy. So, this is not to say that um, we should never use intoxicants or that we should never play video games or never use pornography. But we need to go into uh, those endeavors with a full-on awareness that they are inherently addictive, that they were made to be that way, and that really anybody is vulnerable. Uh, you know, you may think you're invulnerable. I'll never forget the anesthesiology patient that I had who had mixed and matched all kinds of drugs that, you know, he got and he figured because he was an anesthesiologist, he would be fine because he knew how to dose it all. And of course, he became horribly addicted. We can get caught up in this. And typically, when we do get caught up in it, uh, the problem of compulsive overconsumption, we don't see it when it's happening. So it's good just to recognize that. And then, as you say, use self-binding strategies to make sure that we can press the pause button between desire for a substance or behavior and actually reaching for it. 
And the self-finding strategies that I talk about, I categorize in three major groups, time, space, and meaning or category. Time just means limiting our use to specific days of the week or hours in a day, or after we've crossed a certain milestone, accomplish something we said we would accomplish or birthday or whatever it is. Space means literal geographic barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice, keeping the phone on the bedroom, turning it off when we put it in our bag so that there's a little bit of a pause between our being able to text something again. We'd have to turn it on. These are little things, but they can cumulatively make a difference. Also, I talk about pharmacologic barriers that now can help us at the receptor level, things like naltrexone that block the opioid receptor that make even alcohol less reinforcing, that can help people limit their drinks on drinking days, for example. And then finally, meaning barriers or categorical barriers where we say, okay, I can use this app, but that app, whenever I use it, I get sucked in, so I'm going to delete that one from my phone. Or I really can't have sugar, or, or I really can't have processed carbohydrates. Once I start eating cookies, I, I can't stop, so I'm going to stick to whatever it is. Things like that, I think, are necessary now. They're not just sort of like, you know, I don't think they're any longer optional. I think in today's world, all of us have to put these barriers in place in order to be vigilant against getting caught up in compulsive overconsumption. You talked about your own compulsive overconsumption of books. Um, and I worry about it because I got stacks of books <laughs> everywhere. But when this happened to you, when you were experiencing this, how aware were you? You mentioned that sort of you, it dawned on you at some point that you were engaged in an addictive behavior. But you didn't have any inkling that you were kind of heading down that road when you first began. How did you know? And how would somebody know, right? Should these romance novels come with warning labels and say, hey, you know, <laughs> watch me, out. Should, yeah. <laughs> You're going to get hooked on these things, yeah, right? It, like, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked. Yeah. One of the big indicators is, is the development of tolerance, needing more of a drug or more potent forms to get the same effect over time. That should be a big warning for us that our dopamine reward pathway is shifting to the side of pain, essentially, that we're now chasing dopamine instead of living in homeostasis. And what I should have noticed, but I didn't, was how I began to spend more and more time reading romance novels and needed more potent forms to get the same effect, more graphic erotica over time, more sort of deviant erotica. That I remember But it's kind, of, it's kind of like a slippery, it's kind of like the is. frog in the boiling water, right? Right, like you don't, it is. You have to be in pretty deep before you realize it, right? Yeah. And I will say also that technology, my, my Kindle was a major factor in this because that natural barrier sort of having to order it from the library, go to the library, pick it up, wait for the next one, that was eliminated. And all of a sudden I finished one book, I could immediately order another book. There were free books. So it got to the point where I cared less and less about the quality. I was just looking for a very specific experience related to a kind of a euphoria that I could you know, get myself into. And the fact that I you know, had developed this kind of tolerance where I was now drawn to books that I never would have read before. So I think those are things. And then also just the three C's, control, compulsion, and consequences, you know, which are the three C's of addiction that, you know, I planned to stop reading at 11 and was still reading at three in the morning, which happened to me often. Then I'd go to work bleary-eyed. That was a consequence. I wasn't really able to be as effective in my job because I'd been up so late the night before. And then compulsions like a level of automaticity. But another really good way to determine whether or not you become addicted is actually to give up your drug of choice for one month. And that's what I do recommend in the book is a 30-day dopamine fast. 
because it was remarkable to me when I stopped romance novels for a month. I really experienced a kind of a physiologic withdrawal where I was I had terrible insomnia. I had gotten so used to using this drug as a way to fall asleep that I found that in the absence of the drug, I became acutely anxious and restless and had a lot of trouble falling asleep. But by the time I got to 30 days, that got better as it normally will initially. First two weeks are hard and then it starts to get better. Of course, Amazon uses the data that they get from the Kindle to figure out exactly what characteristics of these books make them more addictive. And so the, yeah. the feedback loop is that the novels are evolving over time. The narrative characteristics, the plots, all that stuff is evolving in a way that is designed to hook more people, right? Right. Absolutely. I mean, capitalism has allowed almost every product to hone into the exact thing that is reinforcing for the consumer and to basically turn the volume up on exactly those features. I will say that, that I got rid of my, my Kindle. That was key for me in order to manage this behavior because it's, it's also not just that they like expertly drugified the novel, but the alerts, they, even when you're trying to avoid it, they will present, oh, have you seen this? And oh, you should check this out and this will come up on your Amazon feed or on your YouTube feed or whatever, because of course these AI algorithms, they know us and they know what we've liked before. And importantly, what we know about dopamine is that not only is it released in the reward pathway when we ingest our drug of choice, but even when we're reminded uh, of our drug of choice, either by our own euphoric recall or by some trigger in the environment, we get a little push, noti really, push notification. Yep, push notification. Yep, that releases dopamine followed by a little dopamine deficit state, which is then craving and motivation to get the drug. Yeah, I think there's studies that show that even when your phone is sort of sitting face down beside you, your ability to focus is impaired because you're, it's like having a little baggie of cocaine sitting <laughs> yeah. beside you while you're trying yeah. to get work done, right? Right. Yeah, no, what I find interesting, just like on a meta level, no, no Mark Zuckerberg pun intended, is that our, we now actually have it feels like there's a part of our brain where our phone is actually sitting there. Like we have mental real estate that is almost constantly tracking the phone, which is just powerful because that's mental real estate we're not using in other ways. We're, we're constantly projecting our minds outward to our phones. So I'm wondering why, given the, the, how much addiction there is out there, especially to pharmacological products, why is it so difficult for people to get treatment? Why do we have this imbalance where getting opiates is really easy? Getting treated for opiate addiction is actually quite hard. I would think that if it's something you can bill for, the industry would be like, oh, this is great. We've just created more patients. Fantastic. When we look at diabetes treatment, you reference this. like We don't refuse to treat diabetes patients because they're illness is a product of behavior. Maybe it's even a product of addictive behavior. You're addicted to high glucose products. And we certainly don't refuse treatment to people who come in with lung cancer because of cigarette smoking. When it's addiction per se, we don't really treat it. We get people in and out. They come in, we patch them up, we send them back out, and then we fully expect them to come back. I think the studies have shown that for instance, homeless people, addicted homeless people in San Francisco, the cost of treating them, the EMTs and, and all of that is just, it exceeds the average income of a person by a lot. It's enormously expensive, but these are all short-term fixes, just patching people up rather than 
actually solving the problem for good and for all. Why is it that we, you know, even like people with gold-plated healthcare insurance, I know people that have been unable to get reimbursement for detox and, and rehab. Yeah, there are so many problems um, that explain this phenomenon that you're describing. One is that we do not have an infrastructure inside the house of medicine to treat addiction. We have all kinds of rehabs that have popped up outside of medicine rehabs that are some of them incredibly expensive that insurance won't cover, although it's gotten better in the last three decades or so. But there's really no infrastructure. You can't really walk into an emergency room and say, I'm addicted to opioids. Will you help me? The doctors don't know what to do. They're not trained in it. Insurance companies don't reimburse it. There's no pathway or protocol. Unlike if somebody comes in, in diabetic ketoacidosis, like everybody knows what to do. Every medical student has learned those protocols. The whole place is set up for it. So the lack of infrastructure is a big one. But what There's, they don't do is help you. They don't help that person with diabetes to go forth and diet, right? That, that part is not. That's true. There's some of that, but there's not nearly as much as there should be. Number two, there's enormous stigma still about addiction, this idea that patients are choosing to use. And although that initial use is a choice for people who develop those brain changes that we consider to be the hallmark of addiction. Well, well plus really the initial does. choice might not really be a choice. I mean, if yeah. you're in a hospital setting and yeah, you're point. following doctor's directions, you, that might not be really be a choice. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I'm, that's a good point. But once you de develop addiction, you know, it's very shaming and people don't come forward with it. It's, it's a hidden behavior that can go on for a long time. So that's a barrier to treatment. Another barrier to treatment is that addiction is a complex, relapsing and remitting biopsychosocial disease. And so it requires a complex, chronic biopsychosocial treatment. That means bringing together medical doctors, social workers, looking at the environment, looking at the family situation peer recovery. So it's not, there isn't a pill. There are pills that can help, but there's not typically a magic bullet that's going to do it. And then we're living in an addictogenic world. So you could have somebody who's in recovery and doing well, and then goes into the emergency room with back pain and gets a bolus of fentanyl or Xanax or something like that. And again, their brain chemistry is such that that's got them off and running. It's an environmental problem as much as it is a brain disease problem. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a very good discussion, a great conversation. I enjoyed both of these books, and I look forward to your next book. Maybe you could write an entire book on what the phone is doing to us. <laughs> there are some, there's some, some fascinating hints in the book, Dopamine Nation, and I'm sure that you could elaborate on them in the next book. So thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>